So this morning we start with Isaiah 7, and let me give, we're going to dive into it in detail along the way in the sermon, but let me give a little bit of background so it's reasonably understandable (laughs) as we read. Um, This takes place after Israel is already split in two, and the king of Judah in the south is scared about the king of Israel or Ephraim in the north and, uh, and, and some others teaming up against him. And God's already told him in the beginning part of this chapter, I've got it under control. So that's where we pick up. Isaiah is speaking on God's behalf to King Ahaz. That is not King Ahab, who's a different guy. But King Ahaz, and he says, picking up in verse 10, Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, we're going to need a little prayer this morning for sure to understand all the ins and outs of this. Um, So bow with me. Lord, we need you to speak to us by your spirit, as we always do, but... uh, In particular, we need it this morning. There are confusing things, difficult things about this passage, but there is also deep, profound comfort in it. So speak to us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Have uh, grown up, I was a big fan of the Looney Tunes. The original Looney Tunes, the ones that were, you know, well, really started in the 30s, apparently, but really the 50s and 60s was sort of the heyday of the the original Looney Tunes, they were brilliant. They also had some deeply problematic aspects, which I'm not going to go into this morning. Uh, but, uh, but one of the things I did love about the Looney Tunes was that there were all these references back to, to other works of art uh, along the way. And even as a kid, I liked the idea that there was something there that it was referencing, even if I didn't really understand what it was. Uh, I didn't know anything as a kid about the novels of George Steinbeck uh, or Citizen Kane, what on earth that was or what it was about. Um, I didn't know anything about opera. And what on earth was going on when they reappropriated Wagner in the 1950s? Actually, I'm still not entirely sure I know what was going on when they were reappropriating Wagner in the 1950s, but the... Don't worry about it. You don't need it. If you're not sure what I'm talking about, good. We're all confused together. 
my point actually is still this, that what the Looney Tunes did was take a text that already existed, that people knew about, and did something with it, reused it, alluded to it, quoted from it, did all these other things. And so, so the odd thing was, as I got older and I watched Citizen Kane, or I read a novel by Steinbeck, I sort of had this reference point from the future about those things. But the weirdest thing happens, right? When you think you know from other sources about something that's already happened, something that's already been produced, you bring to it expectations. And then when you go back to the thing, you think, oh, this is very different than I thought. And right in the middle of this passage in Isaiah 7 is a very familiar line at Christmas about the virgin conceiving and bearing a child. It's quoted in Matthew 1 about Jesus. But as we read the rest of this text, you think, what on earth is going on here? What is this even talking about? And as we begin this series in Isaiah, maybe that's a helpful place to begin, that we're so familiar with the Christmas story that the strangeness of it is often lost on us. In this passage in particular, while it is certainly the strangest of the ones we will look at, <laughs> I'll admit that, teaches us something important about our faith. That our faith is not generic. It is not a feel-good story. But it is faith in one specific person. The Son of God who took on flesh who entered into a world with real problems, not generic problems, concrete, actual issues. And that will help us as we understand and unpack what it means to have faith in Jesus. We'll see this morning the prevalence of misplaced faith. We'll see the necessity of tested faith. And we'll see the value of a proven faith. See that prevalence of a misplaced faith, the necessity of a tested faith, and the value of a proven faith. Well, what we, what we see unfolding in this passage, and I'm going to get a little teachy here for a minute, if you can handle that. What we see unfolding is a man with deeply misplaced faith. See, King Ahaz finds himself in this weird moment. The year that this takes place is 735 B.C. Uh, and we know this because we can identify other different geopolitical things going on in the ancient world. This takes place then, 730-some-odd years before Jesus is actually born. Uh, 200 years or so since the kingdom of Israel divided in two. Uh, after, you know, kings David and Solomon, the kingdom breaks up. And in the north, northern Israel is often called simply Israel because the majority of the tribes were part of it. Uh, it's sometimes called Ephraim, as it is in this passage, because the first ruling house came from the tribe of Ephraim. This is all very confusing, isn't it? Hang with me. So there's, there's the north. 
Then there's the southern kingdom, which is called Judah. And because the Davidic line, the kings after David, which were from the tribe of Judah, uh, were still the ruling family there. Now, the northern Israel was always unfaithful to God. From word one. Southern Israel, Judah, is kind of a mixed bag. There's some faithful kings, there's some unfaithful kings. And the situation that all of them find themselves in is that the Assyrian Empire has grown up in what is now modern-day Iraq. And the Assyrian Empire was, a, was brutal. And they ruled in a kind of mafia style, right? You, you paid them, and they were going to keep you safe. Of course, if you decided you didn't want to pay, they were going to show up and break some legs. This is, this is how it worked. Now, again, we're almost done. What is going on is all these kings in, this, in the region are paying Assyria. But northern Israel and Syria, not Assyria, Syria is a small, smaller place, Northern Israel and Syria have decided they don't want anything to do with that Assyrian empire. In fact, what they want to do is rebel against it, form their own league of different nations kind of aligned against them to protect one another. But one of the things they've got to do is because they don't trust Ahaz in Judah is they're going to have to remove him. So they're coming after him. He knows they're plotting against him. And what Ahaz is trying to decide is whether he's going to call in the muscle, whether he's going to call in Assyria to straighten things out. That's the question he's got to face. I know it's a, a little complicated, but this, but this basic question, what is he going to do? It does highlight something about Israel in general in the Old Testament. The promised land is actually one of the most precarious places in the world, <laughs> and especially, especially in the ancient world, because where it is set up is it is the only habitable area in between the two regions that consistently produced large empires in the world, in the ancient world, Egypt and Mesopotamia, which is modern-day Iraq. They were constantly producing empires, and where on earth would those two empires meet is in this little stretch of habitable land that connected them, which was the promised land, which is another way of simply pointing out that the whole position of Israel politically in the ancient world meant that they were never left for very long without having to put their confidence in God or in some other nation. They were constantly being encroached upon. And this question they had to come back to, and Ahaz faces so clearly here, is who is he going to trust in? And God's saying, look, I, I'm going to take care of this. But to understand Ahaz, you've got to understand then that those are real fears. That the temptation is real. Assyria is not an abstract uh, good that he could trade on, they had real power. And if they showed up, they could really do something. And of course, the threat of northern Israel 
And Syria was a real threat. They were more powerful than he was. And if they came against him, he would lose. At least as far as he could tell. He was going to lose. And that tells us something interesting about faith and fear. That we are tempted to trust in things out of our fear. If you want to know actually what it is you put your faith in, it is about what you counteract your fears with. And fear is powerful, isn't it? Our politicians know this. Our advertisers know this. Your dentist knows this. There's charts, man. What happens to your gums? It's scary. Right? Fears are powerful. They're powerful motivators, at least for a time, at least so long as the fear lingers. In the, I mean, you can ask yourself this simple question, what am I afraid of? Of course, most of us don't know what we're afraid of. Some of us, anyway, are not that in tune to where we are emotionally. But you can ask yourself this, you see, when, you, when you're afraid of something, your fight or flight or freeze, instinct kicks in. So what draws that kind of response out of you? If you can't answer the question, what am I afraid of, you can ask that question. What is it that gets me ready to fight or to run away or freezes me up? You know, you can see this reaction um, with your finances. When something happens that's maybe unsettling, with your finances, you, you can see the types of people that respond in different ways, right? Some people get nasty about it. Don't mess with my money. Some people run away from the problem. Just try, I'm not going to deal with that. And some people freeze up, right? You're just stuck there looking at the bill. Not sure what to do. Constantly thinking about it, but never able to kind of get in, act, in gear, right? You see that sort of fight, flight, freeze instinct all over the place. You see it in your relationships. Especially the deep relationships, right? Our relationships with family. Our relationships with, with some of our close friends. And, you know, you see, you see this all over the place. When something tough is going on within a family and start to identify it, you can see how some of us, our first instinct is to fight. Right? You know some folks that never get more riled up than when they're talking about their family. And you see some people that are never so quick to run away from anything than to run away from their family. Or some people that are so paralyzed than with their family. It doesn't even necessarily need to be the worst situation, but it's scary. That's what fear is. And what we are tempted to do is to put our faith in things 
that offer immediate relief, that we think can immediately address this because it's scary. And so we run after all sorts of things that promise immediate relief. We run after, well, sometimes we put faith in ourselves, right? Our own achievements, our own abilities. I can, I can deal with this. I've got the resources to fight this fight. Sometimes we run away to others, to family or to friends to try to deal with it. Sometimes we look for simple solutions. Or we look to anybody that seems to be offering a solution to it. And really, we will go after almost anything to not have to be afraid. But here's the question that we have to ask about all those things that we put faith in. Is are they really worthy of our trust? Can they deliver what they really promise. And I'm not saying, look, it's not that you don't have abilities or haven't achieved something. It's not that others may not be able to help you through something. But are they going to deliver you from fear? Or so often they will deliver you from one fear and into the grip of another. Ahaz has misplaced faith. And truth be told, we do too. There are all kinds of things that we put our faith in that will never deliver. And that's the context into which God speaks. And he offers a test. As we think about, as we move from Thinking about our misplaced faith, we see the necessity of a test of faith. And what God offers, and this is where our reading picked up, in verses 10 and 11, is a sign. You see, he said to Ahaz, I've got this. I'm going to take care of things. So pick a sign and make it as big as you want. (laughs) That's what he's saying, right? As deep as Sheol, the place of the dead. (laughs) or as high as heaven, right? He's saying, make it as big, as grand a gesture as you want. Ask for a sign, and I will give it to you so that you can have confidence in what I'm promising. And do you see what Ahaz does? It's very subtle. In verse 12, he says, oh, no, no, I'm not going to put God to the test. That's a very telling phrase. It's a very cunning rhetorical maneuver because that line, putting God to the test, has a specific reference point. It refers back to the generation of Israelites that left Egypt in the Exodus but constantly tested God. That turn of phrase comes up in Numbers 14 and in Deuteronomy 6, and it talks about how they, were, they didn't trust God, they didn't have faith in Him, and they constantly put Him to the test, and especially, especially when they got to the edge of the promised land, and refused to trust him. And they ended up wandering in the desert for 40 years. And that turn of phrase comes up even again in Psalm 95 and in Psalm 106, reflecting on the lack of faith 
that that generation had in God. Jesus even quotes from the Deuteronomy 6 passage when he talks to Satan, right? Like, I'm not going to put God to the test. So notice what Ahaz is doing. This is very slick. That he is using a very pious turn of phrase. Sounds very holy, doesn't it? I'm not going to put God to the test. But he uses his pious turn of phrase to dismiss the clear command of God. He sounds, he's posturing in a way. He's doing the right thing to look holy. But what he's doing is turning away from God. And God's response to him is, okay, you want it that way? I'm going to give you a sign. The one I choose. And it's going to be a sign of judgment. I'm going to send a son. Now, we are going to talk about the identity of the son in the next point. But make no mistake, everything associated with this son is judgment. In verse 16, we are told that before he grows old, that is to say before he can tell the difference between good and evil, before he grows old, those two kingdoms you're scared about, they're going to be gone. And it's true, 13 years later in 722, Assyria destroys northern Israel, wipes it out. In verse 15, though, he says, But you and your people in Judah, by the time he's grown up, you're going to be eating the food of poverty. The curds and honey later on in verses 20 and tw- through 25, that's associated with poverty. By the time this son is grown up, you are going to be in dire straits. In fact, in verse 17, you're going to experience a strife like you have not seen since Israel was torn apart. Torn in two. I'm going to bring the king of Assyria against you. We'll talk about the identity of the son more in a minute, but it is a sign of judgment. See, Ahaz is a hypocrite. I mean, there's just, that's the word for it. There's no other way to put it. He's a hypocrite. He has good reasons to be afraid, but he doesn't want to trust in the Lord. He wants to trust in his own perspective on it and not in God's. And he uses all of this evasive rhetoric to try to maintain his own, probably his own self-opinion that he is good, that he's holy, but uses it to avoid the very thing that God has called him to. And we know this story, right? Because when we talk about holiness, we almost always assume hypocrisy. It may be fair enough, right? I mean, this happens with Christian leaders all the time, right? It seems like it's never too long in between some scandal, some big-name pastor, somebody who leads a big ministry, or something terrible is found out. 
And we know this even in just the ordinary Christian life. You don't have to get very long in, in life till you know those who have fallen into sin and try to justify it. I mean, maybe we're struggling with that here ourselves right now. But we're good at faking it, right? Because you learn a style of worship and you can fake it. I mean, you know, if it, it can be liturgical and very set, right? And, you're, and you become, you memorize every aspect of that and you're locked in. It can be free form and, and very expressive, but there is still a way, a style of doing things. And you get good at imitating that style. There's all of our evangelical jargon. And you can spit that out easily, right? I mean, really, you can just learn all those turns of phrases, right? And string them along. And sometimes you can have whole conversations with people. It's all jargon about your Christian life. And, well, that person seems like they've got it figured out, don't, don't they? Seems like everything's going well. You can be the person that's the moral watchdog. Keeping an eye to make sure everybody's doing what they're supposed to do. In the age of social media, right, you can be, you can excel at virtue signaling. That I'm all for the right causes all the time. We're good at faking it. But as one, as one Puritan put it, uh, this guy William Gurnell, he wrote this huge book on Ephesians 6 and the the armor of God. But this is, he says, this is so amazing. He says, as for the formality of religious service, the hypocrite often outdoes the sincere Christian. Of all people, he may be called a master of ceremonies because he tries to entertain God with his tongue and knee, with words and outward ceremony. God looks on the heart. You see, God is testing his faith and he is failing. Because it is not merely a matter of how he postures himself. Obedience always goes deeper than that. It always gets to the heart. That's why faith only proves itself through testing. Because it is only in testing that the facade is shed. And that our hearts are exposed. Little wonder, right, that in Romans, one of the great New Testament books, right, about, the, about, about what it means to live a life of faith, Paul talks about obedience that's from the heart in Romans 6. Later on, he flips that on his head in chapter 14 and says, what doesn't proceed from faith is sin. Right, that if our heart isn't engaged, if our obedience doesn't come from the heart, if it doesn't involve faith in God, then it's not really obedience at all. He's not saying obedience is optional, to be clear, right? <laughs> but he is saying what God wants is the profound engagement of our hearts. That's what God's really looking for. And you know the hypocrite, because the hypocrite doesn't want to engage the heart. That may not be easy to see on the outside. But that is what we should notice over time. It is the thing we ought to be asking ourselves. 
Is my heart engaged with this? And you know you're, you know you're in trouble when you pit those sort of unseen aspects, the things like the fruit of the Spirit, over against your principled stance. And it happens all the time. Can I tell you about a, a, a peculiarly Presbyterian hypocrisy? <laughs> um, and I'll say this because it's, it's my own issue, right? All over the place, the Bible tells particularly Christian leaders not to be quarrelsome. First Timothy talks about it, Second Timothy talks about it. Comes up all over the place. Don't be quarrelsome. But Presbyterians love to stand on principle, right? And we got our theology figured out. We got all the I's dotted, all the T's crossed, right? And if somebody is out of line, we've got to deal with that. If their formulation isn't just so. Now, here's the thing. I'm pretty darn Presbyterian in my theology. I, I, I th- I, there's a reason why I'm here. I think that's accurate. But we're also told not to be quarrelsome. If I find myself in the position of thinking, I know God doesn't tell me to be, God tells us not to be quarrelsome, but I've got to deal directly with this issue. Maybe the problem is not with the other person, but it's with me. Right? How many times do you find yourself thinking, I know I'm supposed to be kind, or gentle. I know I'm supposed to exercise self-control. But I've got to deal with this thing, right? If we've got this problem. And so we lay those things aside. I mean, that's the very, that's what hypocrisy is. It's laying aside, and it's so often, those things which are matters of the heart, which, you know, I mean, I can't, I can't see in your heart. I can't see exactly what's going on. Nobody else can tell you exactly, but if you start to think it through yourself, if other people who do know you pretty well express concern about that, then we ought to start asking ourselves, what's going on? And see, and see this, the opposite of hypocrisy is not flawlessness. In fact, it's the very mindset of the hypocrite to think, okay, I know I'm not perfect. I've got to lock this down. I've got to make myself above reproach. No, no, no. The, the cure to hypocrisy is to go back to the gospel and say, I know that I am flawed. The sign of somebody who is not a hypocrite is not that they are flawless, but that they are repentant. See the difference? It's an important difference. The opposite of somebody who's a hypocrite is not somebody who's flawless, but somebody who's repentant, who does not want to live under the delusion of their perfection, who does not want to think that they are ever above reproach. 
in and of themselves, that they are perfect, that they have what it takes. But the person who, wa- who is willing to be self-reflective, whose deepest longing is to heal what they have hurt, that is the opposite of hypocrisy. So we see that God tests our faith in order to expose the heart, to expose what it is we really trust in. Which gets us then maybe to this question, what on earth does this have to do with Advent? What are we talking about? We're talking about geopolitics from 700 years before Jesus was even born. We're talking about one king who's so dumb that he thinks he can trick God with his pious rhetoric. Okay, maybe we're like him in that way a little bit, but what does this have to do with it? And it has everything to do with what we said at the very beginning. Now, when you get to Jesus in the New Testament, when you get to the the Christmas story in Matthew, we read this, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. See, Isaiah 7, in this sign of this child, may not have meant this to Isaiah or to Ahaz. They may not have immediately thought and predicted all those events that were going to happen 700 years later. In fact, they almost certainly didn't. The, the, word, the word that's translated here, virgin, in Hebrew simply means a young woman. Now, obviously, her chastity was implied in that. A later Greek translation, that's, but it's also before Jesus, does translate it virgin in, into Greek. So, that, again, that's clearly implied. But there's a child that's born in the next chapter, if you keep reading in Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah himself has another son. He already has one who has the funny name uh, Sha'ar Jashub. This one gets the name Mahar Shalal Hashbaz, which means quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil. That's a terrible name. (laughs) I don't, I can't imagine. Um, I mean, surely they didn't call him that, right? That's just a mouthful every time. Um, maybe Mahar. I don't know. But whatever the case is, he has this son who was born, and the prophecies continue about Assyria being destroyed by the time he gets older. So they probably thought in the first place that that's who it's talking about. And, and you know, even modern Jewish interpreters, that's often the route that they go in thinking about what seven means. But. This is what's really important. Emmanuel still must mean something in this context, right? That if God is going to be with them, what is that going to mean? And the answer immediately is judgment. If God shows up to this sinful nation, judgment. That's what he's going to bring. 
But the fascinating thing that we see when God shows up in the most material sense, when He takes on flesh 700 years later, is that He has also come to deal with sin. Do you notice that? When God is with them in the most literal sense, in the flesh, He has come to save His people from their sins. That if God shows up, He has got to do something about our evil state. It's very, again, it's very confusing, right? That, that why would... I mean, I get, you know, you can see the virgin birth thing, right? Is obviously the connecting point here and why he sees this, but it's also a deep reflection on the task of Jesus. The task of Jesus is to exercise judgment. When God comes to be with them in the fullest sense of the word, when he takes on flesh, when he is God with them, not only in general, but in particular, he has got to deal with sin. But the thing that's surprising, the thing that's unexpected, of course, about what Jesus does is that He takes the judgment on Himself. That's the aspect of Emmanuel that was so unexpected. Israel itself would come to convince, be convinced that when God showed up, He was going to exercise judgment on those other nations. <laughs> yeah, when God shows up, He's going to, you know, of course, He's going to judge, and He's predicting that He's going to judge northern Israel. And he's going to judge Syria. He's going to judge Assyria. Later on in Isaiah, it'll be Babylon. It'll be, other, you know, God's going to judge th- those nations, right? But what is being promised here in Isaiah is that it's going to be a judgment against Israel itself. And so the most unexpected thing is that God shows up and takes judgment on Himself. His own judgment He bears on our behalf, on Israel's behalf, on behalf of the nations. He does show up. The cross is a judgment day. That's why the New Testament authors are not scared to talk about every moment of history since Jesus' death and resurrection as the end. Because the stuff about the end is already happening. Judgment Day is happening. If you're in Jesus, you've been judged already. (laughs) Judgment Day is over. And the resurrection has happened. In Him, but if you're in Him, that's still coming for you. All the stuff about the end is happening. God has begun judgment. This is what it means that God is with us. What was a scary thing in Isaiah 7 becomes a sign of God's faithfulness in Jesus. Because God is faithful to see His people through, He will be with them. And Jesus faced all the fears of life. Wouldn't you know it? He, was, he, he faced a fearful world 
around him, nature (laughs) rising up. He faced sickness. But he told the storm to calm. He told the sickness to be gone. He faced literal political oppression. He also faced a family that rejected him. He endured the shame and agony of God's judgment that we deserved. But he was raised back to life as the guarantee that he is faithful and that whatever he promises, he will fulfill. This is the sign that he is with us that he has taken on flesh, that he has defeated death and evil. So what do you fear? What do you fear this Advent? Is it a pandemic? And we all kind of do. Maybe it's varying degrees, some of us more than others, but we're all afraid about it. Are you afraid of the political forces at work right now in our country? One way or the other. Are you afraid? Are you afraid about large-scale societal problems? Are you afraid about specific issues in your family, in your life? No matter how large or how big they are, no matter how small and particular they are, put your faith in Jesus. Trust in Him. You see, because Jesus has proven over and over again that nothing is out of His control. That no comfort is out of His reach for you. That He never withholds His love. He has proven it by entering in. And He has proven it by giving His life. He is faithful to the bitter end. So what do you trust in? Are you going to trust in all those other things that promise immediate results? Or will you put your faith in the God that is with us, whose faithfulness knows no end? Trust in Him. Amen. Lord, we ask that you would give us faith. You know that our faith is often weak, that we struggle with it. But however up and down our faith is, you are always faithful. Teach us to trust you, that we might be encouraged and strengthened even in the midst of our fears because God is with us. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.